0: Good morning, I believe. Not sure if this mic is working. I'm just gonna keep talking. Good morning, welcome to the Northgate live service. Uh my name is Garrett, I'm the youth pastor here, and I will be serving up some announcements this morning. Um first things first, uh Lana is Mark here. Just, okay. Okay, okay. I just He's not here. He's probably afraid I'll single, single, single him out. I'm pretty sure I was going to. Um, but yeah, they have recently gotten engaged. So finally, I mean, congratulations. Yay! Oh, that is so exciting. So uh, congratulations, you two. Uh, the NAB Triennial Conference is going to be online this year. That's uh, it's happening next month. That's July 8th to 10th. Um, it's I think they're waiving fees, like registration fees and stuff. That's awesome. If you're interested in it, check the bulletin. Uh, if you check the back page, it's like a third of the bulletin, so uh, lots of information there. The Family Matters meeting, um, if you're disappointed that it got uh, postponed, don't worry. It's scheduled for June 16th. So uh, you, online or in person, please register through Eventbrite or contact the office. Uh, Youth, young adults, please attend as well. Uh, there won't be any youth that day. Father's Day is coming up. Please get your videos in if you need more information on that. We're just uh, checking them both in. There's a little blurb on that as well. Um, so, yeah, that's coming up. We want to be able to put the video together and bless the fathers uh, in Northgate and uh, all around. So, please get that video in. Uh, get it done now if you can. It, it, Go to the, pause the live stream, get it done. Uh, Zoom meeting, oh yes, Uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to meet with uh, Mark Barrett yet, the uh, associate pastor candidate, uh, register with the office. There is another meeting, I believe it's on June 10th at 6.30. And uh, I'm not sure, there might be other ones, but don't count on it. So register for this one. And I believe that's it for announcements this morning. Uh, allow me to, to pray for the rest of the service, and we'll get things on the road. God, we, uh, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, um, God, as we, uh, as we look forward to what you have for us this morning, as, uh, as we look forward to what is all happening in the next couple weeks, God, that... Uh, Oh, we look forward to, um, to hearing from you. We look forward to seeing what you're doing. God, and we thank you for all you have done and for all you will do. God, we, uh, yeah, God, we, uh, we pray that you open our minds and our hearts um, for the way you were willing to transform us this morning. And uh, God, as we hear from your word, um, God, change our minds and our
1: hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good morning, Northgate family. My name is Arnold Urbonus. The reading today is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave this council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I was asked to give a word on, uh, say, what I've been doing for the past year. Well, I must say the pandemic and my retirement have coincided and overlapped each other quite well. I've been at home working around the house. Blessings to you all.
2: Thank you, Arnold, for that update and for reading our passage this morning. Uh, Just before we pray and jump into that, I just received word that Herb Service actually has passed away. He passed away last night. Keep their family, keep Kathy in prayer uh, going forward in these next few days uh, as that family just grieves the loss, and our condolences go out to them. Let's just pray. Father God, Lord, we do pray for the service family at this time, uh, asking that your comfort, your presence would be with them in just a powerful way. Uh, Lord, as they grieve um, the loss of Herb, um, the the dad, the husband, and Lord, I just pray that um, your spirit would be close at hand. To them during this time. And Lord for us here as well today that Lord we just pray that you also would be close to us as we open your word that Lord you would be our teacher. That Lord you would guide us into truth. That Lord uh, you would help this all that we say and talk about this morning be honoring to you but Lord also find good soil in our hearts uh, to just take root and to grow. And Lord yeah give me boldness give me courage. Uh, Lord as I priest, preach this passage just as Peter had that same kind of courage standing before uh, those men so long ago. And Lord, we just want to dedicate this to you, invite you uh, into this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start with a story about a monk named Telemachus. Uh, you probably never heard of him. I didn't really know much about him either. But uh, he was a 5th century Christian monk uh, who lived in a remote village uh, sort of devoted himself to living just a real simple life. He tended his garden, you know, spending time in prayer, uh, just doing those very simple things. But more and more he found that his heart was being stirred to see more of the world. Uh, so he decided one day he's going to travel to Rome, the capital of the empire. And when he arrived in the city, wouldn't you know it, he arrived just as a parade was going through the streets... During a great festival. So the little monk was sort of caught up in this excitement of this crowd surging down the street. So he he joined in just to see what all the commotion was about. Interested to see what had them so very excited. And as he followed the crowds, it led him to that great Roman Colosseum. Uh, And there he saw the gladiators uh, begin to assemble. And then they went and they stood out and they gave that famous salute. We who are about to die... Salute you. And it was then that Telemachus realized that these men were about to fight to the death for the entertainment of the crowd. And the crowd cheered, but Telemachus was horrified. So in the midst of all the noise and the uproar of the crowd, he cried out as loud as he could, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop. But nobody heard him. So as the games began, he began to push his way to the front and he climbed over the little wall there and he jumped onto the floor of the arena and the crowd watched as this tiny little man rushed to the gladiator, still crying out those words, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop. And many in attendance, they thought that was all just part of the show and they began laughing, but after a few moments, they realized the truth as this defenseless little man put himself directly between two gladiators who were trying to kill each other. And accounts differ as to what happened next, but many say that the crowd rebelled, began to get angry at this interference, and they began to jeer him. And eventually the jeering became to them throwing things, and eventually the throwing things led to them actually stoning this poor monk to death. And as he fell to the sand and lay there dying, his last words were, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop. And from all appearances, it was a a senseless death. It was a waste of an innocent life. But what most people don't know is that the emperor was actually moved by this one man's act of courage. This act of faith in the face of his attackers. And it was actually the year 401 A.D. And the emperor then declared an end to gladiator gladiator combat in Rome. After that day, never again in that great stadium did men kill each other for the entertainment of the crowds. And it was all because of one voice. One voice, one man, one life that was willing to speak the truth and take a stand boldly In Jesus' name. And many believers know what that's like. Because there are things, as we live our Christian life, there are things that we face that can make us afraid. Um, Things that can make us hesitate. Things that can sometimes give us pause. Even when we know what the right thing is to do as followers of Jesus Christ, we often feel daunted or apprehensive or even intimidated when it comes to living our lives. And yet as Christians, our lives are to be characterized by boldness and courage to both take a stand and to speak up for Jesus' name. And that's really what we're looking at in our this morning as we open this passage in Acts chapter 4. And to quickly sort of refresh our memories, uh, remember the background to these events. Uh, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray. When a beggar who was crippled from birth asked them for a handout, for some money, Peter didn't have any money, but he responded with those wonderful words in Acts 3, verse 6. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man was healed. He got to his feet. And the people in the temple courts that day were amazed that this crippled man that they had seen, you know, sitting on his mat for years at the temple gates, was now jumping and dancing and praising the Lord. And with that, a crowd began to gather. And Peter and John, seeing an opportunity as those crowds gathered, they began to preach the good news to the people. The good news of Jesus Christ. And yet not everybody who was there that day in the temple courts liked what they heard. And that's where our passage begins to pick up the story. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now I'm not sure if you recognize it here, but this is actually this actually happens to be kind of a momentous moment for the church. But not in a good way. Because until this moment, you know, we read in the book of Acts, the early church days were full of excitement. Uh, Thousands of people believed in Jesus. Signs and wonders were happening. They found favor with all the people. Daily people were being saved. But now we see something changes. And that something is persecution. The honeymoon's over. And From this point on, as we read through the book of Acts, we're going to see there are going to be those who set themselves up to oppose the proclamation of the gospel. There are going to be those forces in this world who are going to oppose the work of the church of Jesus Christ. And again, that shouldn't come as a shock to us. In fact, it's a fulfillment of Jesus' own words. Uh, Matthew 10, 22. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. Matthew five verse eleven, Jesus says, "Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of th- evil things against you because of me." And even Paul writes in 2 Timothy three twelve, "Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." And you know, in many parts of the world today, believers still daily face that kind of pressure and that kind of persecution. Open Doors Ministry, which is a ministry that keeps track of the the persecution of Christians worldwide, on its homepage writes, a woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She's escaped Boko Haram and who kidnapped her and she is pregnant. And when she returns home, her community will reject both her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together when instantly many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. And those are but a few stories of the persecution in our world today. Because more than 340 million Christians are living in countries where they suffer what is considered high levels. High levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. On average, every day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith. 12 church buildings are attacked. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, and imprisoned. And 5 Christians are abducted and kidnapped. One stat that sort of stood out to me is that in North Korea alone, it's estimated fifty to 70,000 Christians are currently imprisoned in labor camps in that country. This world is not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. And yet even in our own country, we know there are those who would like to keep us silent, who would like to keep us from speaking out, keep us from having a voice. And if you don't believe me, Just go out there and try to talk to someone about abortion or gay marriage or the fact that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And you're going to feel the resistance too. And yet as believers, we have the very words of life that people need to hear to be saved. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 13 to 15, says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he adds, how then will they call on one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one they have not, have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach to them? There will be times when our preaching of the gospel meets resistance, but it should never stop us from speaking. Because even, even in our passage, even in the book of Acts, we see Peter and John were willing to speak the truth to this crowd. And look at the results. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Their boldness resulted in lives being saved for eternity, and the church grew because they refused to remain silent about their witness of who Jesus is. And they refused to remain silent even when they were confronted with some pretty tough customers. Uh, look at verse 5. It says, On the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ana- Anais, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now you can actually really see here, how seriously the authorities took this situation by Luke's list of who showed up the next day to put these guys on trial. I mean, these were not guys who just sort of rolled out of bed for every little, you know, confrontation or whatever, every little problem that came up at the temple. And we might call these guys the usual suspects. Uh, there was Anais, who was the honor, honorary high priest, and there was Caiaphas, who was actually the official high priest, but he was also Anais' son-in-law. And with them were gathered two people who we think were actually their brothers, uh, John and Alexander. So it's all sort of one family. And then with them uh, were also gathered, you know, all the unnamed elders and rulers of the people. It's a picture that Luke paints here of men of great power gathering together. These were the men who sat in authority and ruled in the city of Jerusalem. These were men, when they said jump, the people said, how high? Uh, And most notably, I think here, these were also the men who plotted to put Jesus to death. This group of men here, when when Jesus said, I'm going to betray Jesus, these were the guys who provided the silver. When they put Jesus on trial, these were the guys who pronounced Jesus, even though he was innocent, they pronounced him guilty. These were the guys who dug up all the false witnesses that they could find to bring false testimony against Christ. When Pilate, said, who should I release? These were the guys who stirred up the crowds to say, give us Barabbas. And what about Jesus? Crucify him. These were the guys behind all of those things. So when they asked Peter the question, what is your authority and in whose name did you do this? I think you know they're not going to like the answer. But Peter's going to tell them anyways. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And hearing that, I think it's pretty obvious that Peter is not a lawyer. Uh, Because Peter, he doesn't apologize, he doesn't say sorry, he doesn't demand his rights, he doesn't look for a loophole to get off in his charges, he doesn't even remain silent so his words can't be used against him. Instead, what does Peter do? Peter preaches preaches a 30-second sermon, basically puts the judges on trial, he accuses them of spiritual ignorance, accuses them of murder, accuses them of rejecting God himself, and then he has an altar call. I mean, that is boldness. In Jesus' name. But where did that boldness come from? Because I actually want you to remember, uh, I want you to remember that scene from the gospel where Jesus has been arrested and he's been put on trial. And in the courtyard of the house, we know Peter's hiding in the shadows. And he's recognized. And three times, Peter curses and denies even knowing Jesus. If you remember that scene, you need to know that the men at the house that Peter was you know, hiding from, the men that Peter was afraid of in that moment, are the same men that he is now standing before. So what happened to Peter? Well, look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that he was uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And to me, that's really actually all the explanation a person needs to understand what's happening here. Peter and John were ordinary men. They worked hard as fishermen to make a living, but they were uneducated, untrained. They didn't have, you know, any worldly influence or power And yet these ordinary followers of Jesus impressed these rulers and authorities so much we're told they're astonished. That's a big word. Uh, You know, it's a way of saying they were flabbergasted. They were, you know, speechless, almost bewildered at his boldness. And in their minds, there was no question where that came from. That these men had been with Jesus. And I have to confess It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I think if there was one compliment that someone could ever give me that I think would mean more than anything else, it would be that one. I love the idea that people can see a difference in your life when you've spent time with Jesus. And I don't think it's that these priests suddenly recognize Peter and John's face and like, oh, you know, as being part of Jesus. Like, oh, don't I actually know you from somewhere? Like, weren't you those two guys that used to hang out with Jesus? No, I think it's when they saw the boldness. When they saw that courage, when they heard the authority by which they spoke those words through the Holy Spirit, it was then that these guys looked at these two before him and said, you know what, these guys, these guys are just like Jesus. And I think when the priests and the rulers saw Jesus or Peter and John standing there before them, they were actually seeing their worst nightmare come true. Because they had just gotten rid of Jesus. And they may have still been sort of patting themselves on the back for doing so. But now two of Jesus' followers show up. And they are just as much trouble as Jesus ever was. And now, you know, there's not just two of them. There are literally now thousands of followers of Jesus in their city. And they know it's going to be a problem. So the rulers and the priests and the high priests, they all take a step back. And they have a little private meeting in order to figure out what are they going to do. And they come up with this brilliant strategy to solve their problem. Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that we may, it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And actually, one thing I always noticed about verse 17 of this passage is, is this idea. When they're talking amongst themselves, this group can't actually even bring themselves to say Jesus' name aloud. They only say, we well, stop them speaking in this name. Because they all knew who he we was talking about. But they refuse to even speak Jesus' name when they're by themselves. And maybe that's a good thing. Because there's power in Jesus' name. You know, one quote I found this week says, for 2,000 years, the name of Jesus has not reformed alcoholics, it's transformed them. It has purified prostitutes, made liars tell the truth, turned haters into lovers, turned wife beaters into docile men. At the name of Jesus, lame men walk and blind men see. At the name of Jesus, people find hope and broken lives are made whole. At the name of Jesus, lost sinners become saints of God. The name of Jesus heals and restores and saves. And the Bible tells us that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name and that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it would almost be humorous if it weren't so tragic what this group of spiritual leaders demands of Peter and John. Verse 18, they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But look at Peter and John's response. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And you know, as we consider Peter's words there, I think we should realize that that's the way we should all be sort of living our lives. I would say this is actually the secret to Christian life, except it's not a secret. Anyone with a basic understanding of the Bible will come across this truth time and time again. The first of the Ten Commandments you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said, You cannot serve two masters. Either he will hate one or love the other, or he will devote it to one and despise the other. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. When asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. And it all points to the priority of God in our lives. That's the key. That's the key to boldness. That's the key to victorious Christian living. That's the key to having our lives transformed by Christ. When it comes to Christ or anything else, we choose Christ. We must live for an audience of one. We must live for Jesus Christ alone. We kneel before the name. We kneel our hearts, our lives, our all in all before the name of Jesus. We just lay it all down. That's what it really comes down to. And whether you've been you know, called to stand before the crowds of the Roman Colosseum or whether you're on trial before the high priest for speaking out of the name of Jesus or whether you're simply in the process of living your life every day, we must choose who we are going to live for and never look back in our devotion to Christ. And that's really the big lesson of this passage this morning living for Christ in all that we do. But you know, that leads us to a problem. Um, Because many people are actually using the very words of Peter here, that Peter speaks in verse 19. They're using those words as a justification to deny the current government and fully open their churches during COVID. Um, You know, the question of whether or not we're serving God or men is on the lips of many people in churches right now. And it's getting a little bit ugly. And I know this can be a delicate issue for many people, but I actually just want to take a few minutes um, to take a little bit of time to explain why I think it continues to be the right decision and has been the right decision through all of this to comply with the government orders these past 15 months. Because I want you to know there there were theological reasons we took the action that we did. And it was not done lightly. It was not just mindless obedience to the government. But it was a careful and sound biblical judgment that led us to this position. A position that we took not out of fear, but out of faith. So it all really goes back to another passage, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. And it says there, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And this verse actually clearly shows us that the government and God are not always in disagreement, and that God Himself has established the authority of the government in our life for a purpose. And we as people, we've accepted the authority of government in many areas of our lives. You I mean, we allow them to set speed limits. We, they regulate the economy. They maintain an armed forces for our defense. They build infrastructure. They dispense justice. You know, if someone murders or steals, it's the government that places them under arrest and punishes them. But the government just, the government can't just take any authority that the government wants, Um you know, just because the government can want it. Uh, you know, God actually, you know, gives the government authority to fulfill a purpose. You know, even the government, when it comes to authority, the government has to stay in its lane. So, the big question we need to answer, and the most important question in this whole discussion, is does the government have the authority and, therefore, by extension, the duty to protect its people from a pandemic? Because we know if a foreign army invaded, we would expect the government to to show up and protect us. But does the government have the duty to act and protect its citizens from a disease that would spread like wildfire if unchecked? And as I read the Bible, the answer that I come to is yes. Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings... And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What Paul is saying is that part of the government's job is creating security for people to live in. Uh, we pray for the government, so that, and those in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And part of that peaceful and quiet life, to me, implies we don't let a contagious disease run unchecked or let our health system collapse, like we've seen in places, other places in the world, like India, where governments have lost control of the virus spread. And of course, I'll say here, not everyone agrees with me, and that's okay. Some feel biblically that the government doesn't have that duty to protect the people, the the health of its citizens. And there's others who think that, you know, coronavirus, it's not a real threat. It's, you know, all conspiracy theory or, you know, something. And therefore, they think that If the threat isn't real or it's smaller than implied, then the government's authority is actually forfeit on this as well. But again, if unregulated COVID spread is a real threat to our peace and safety, and if the government has a real duty and God-given authority to act, then as a church, it is our duty to follow God's command and submit to authority. To submit to that authority that God has given them in this situation. So by submitting to their government... It is actually our obedience to God. And keep in mind here, and I think this is important, um, we're not required to agree with the government. God doesn't tell us that we have to like what the government is doing in order to submit. You know, uh, there are a lot of things the government has done in all this that I strongly disagree with. Um, I think there's a lot of things they've done that have caused more harm than good. There are things I wish they had done differently. And I can be vocal about that. I can share my opinion. I can let the government know that I'm unhappy. When the election comes, I can vote a different way. But again, just because I'm unhappy, it doesn't mean I I don't have to do what I have to do in order to submit to that authority that God has put over us. But there are those who counter, well, what about our constitutionally protected rights to worship and gather? Well, as a church, we could. We could stand up for our rights. We could demand our own way. We could, we could fight the government tooth and nail every step of the way. But God calls us to submit. And it seems to me that submission, part of submission, is actually being willing to surrender our rights at certain times. Because submission is not about us getting what we want at any cost. It's Submission practically by definition is not self-centered. It's not what's in it for me. But if that's true, when do we have the right to deny the government rulers? Just as Peter and John do in our passage. Well, I think our passage highlights two big reasons. Two big areas where I would call godly civil disobedience is justified. And the first is when the government commands us to do something that God has forbidden. Um. We can disobey the government in that case. The government can't make us sin. Make us do something where God tells us we can't do. And then by extension, the second place where we can disobey the government is when the government tries to prevent us from doing something that God has commanded us to do. That's also sin. And that's the case in our passage here. I mean, Peter and John are like, if God has commanded his followers of Jesus to speak about Jesus, then you, you, the government, nobody can command us to keep silent. So at those times when, you know, God and the government are in conflict, we choose to obey God. But again, at no time did our government tell us to sin in all of this. And at no time did our government outright forbid us from doing things that we need to do to obey God. In fact, I would actually say that our government took great pains to give churches as much freedom as they could during all of this. Because throughout this pandemic, as a church, you know, we, we still could connect with others. We could still pray for each other. We could still worship. We could still share Christ with others. We could still preach the word, and we could still preach the gospel. We could still do all of those things. And if the government had tried to say, you can't do those things, I can assure you, thousands of churches would have risen up and said, no, we draw the line. But we still could do those things. It's just that at times, because of the pandemic, we had to find creative new ways in order to do them. But you know what? Changing the way we traditionally do things and changing the way we do church in itself is not a sin. I mean, even in the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, you realize the church changed how they had to meet several times. It was basically a mega church of thousands of people in Jerusalem at the beginning, when it began. But then it was an underground church when persecution broke out. And then it transformed into a church planting movement. And then in other places it became, you know, small house churches meeting and gathering together in different places. Because at no time does the Bible say that the only way that you can truly be the church is if you get together once a week at a big building on Sunday mornings around 10 a.m. and every person in the church has to physically be present um, and be there or you're not really a church. In fact, I think that's a danger because we've talked about this before. We don't go to church. We are the church. And nothing can change that. So during COVID, we, you know, we had churches that moved into new areas. They they added multiple services so they could reach more people. Or they went to move to online services. They moved to drive-in services or outdoor services. All of those things. And you know what? Many of those churches, because they were willing to make those changes, actually found all kinds of new avenues and opportunities for proclaiming the gospel to people. Even our church. I mean, we had to make that move to being online. But we have reached people now online that we likely never would have been able to reach otherwise. So I think that for some churches to say that God can only be honored if we defy the government orders so we can have one big traditional church service on Sunday mornings is wrong. And I don't also think it's not unreasonable for the government to ask us as churches to make some changes in order to keep the people in our churches safe. We're, we're, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd. Part of my job is to keep people safe. Safe and cared for. But maybe I should just touch on one more passage here. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. So I hear this one quoted right now a lot too. It says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now some would point to that verse and they would hold it up and say, well, you know what? God very much does command that we have to meet together. Therefore, we can openly uh, disobey the government on this point. And I confess, I've actually used that verse myself to encourage people to be in church on Sunday mornings. But again, when you look at that passage in Hebrews, the message is not that you need to be physically present in a church building every week. Because the word in verse 25 where it says, not neglecting, The word neglect there actually means a total and complete abandonment. This verse is not talking about missing a Sunday service, you know, here or there. This passage is talking about someone walking away from the church for good. He's saying don't completely abandon your faith by walking away from church. To me, this passage is not about attendance. It's about apostasy. It's about people turning their backs on church altogether. So I don't think that that verse really applies to our situation in that way. But you know, there's one more reason that I do think it's important that we submit to the government in this case. And that's simply our church's witness to our community. And you know, through all of this, I've actually followed many stories in the news. And I'll tell you, without exception, People outside the church are angry with these churches that have opened up. I've seen stories where neighbors of these churches are writing letters demanding that the churches move out of their community. These communities want these churches closed. They want these churches out. They don't want these people in their communities. And if the purpose of these churches is to be a witness to their community, then by remaining open, They are destroying almost all of the goodwill and opportunity they may have had in that community to share Christ. And again, it's one thing to be persecuted for doing good. And many Christians all around the world have to face that on a daily basis. But it's another thing to face anger from people because they think you're being selfish or self-serving or acting entitled. And that's what many people perceive these churches to be doing because of their actions. So in opening the doors of their churches to their members, they have effectively closed the doors on reaching their communities. Because they've destroyed their witness. Which, going back to our passage, is actually, it's exactly the reason Peter refuses to obey the rulers before him in this situation. Because Peter's witness about Christ to reach other people was too important for him to compromise. For his own self-interest. He's like, I'm not going to play it safe here because I need to share Christ with people. Our witness is too important. And that's where we want to just close this morning. And I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but let's end it where it all began, with a reminder of Jesus and the power of his name and the goodness of his grace and the wonder of his salvation and a reminder of That Jesus is to be our all in all. Because Jesus is to be our message and he is to be our motivation in all that we do. And it is to the name of Jesus that we kneel. It is to him that we devote our lives. It's to him that we seek before all other things. It is Jesus who is to be our first priority. And some people think marriage is going to do that for them. Marriage will make them absolutely happy. Some people think, if I can just get that one dream job, that's going to give me my satisfying life. Some people think it's education. Some people turn to money or drugs or something else, try to fill that void. But I'm here to tell you that the things of this world can never satisfy. Jesus is the only one who can save, the only one who we should serve. And as we come to the Lord's table again this morning, let's take time to reflect once again upon Jesus knowing that he has offered us his forgiveness through his death, and our salvation was made complete when it was nailed to the cross. And let us prepare ourselves to take communion and allow God to examine our hearts. And as we do, I want you to hear the words of Peter once again. That salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name except for Jesus. And I'm going to pray and then we're going to take a short break and Len is going to play. And if you need some time at home uh, to to prepare the bread and the juice, you can do so at this time. But even more, uh, just let us take a few moments here just to reflect on these things and prepare our hearts as we come to the communion table once again this morning. Let's pray. Father God, as we've heard this morning, uh, Lord, Jesus Christ, and obedience to Jesus Christ should be our highest goal, and as our as followers, it should be our greatest. Joy.